0: I'm Michael Pauly, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, It's uh, great to be doing another edition of Faith in Politics. Uh, I've had to take a little uh, hiatus for a while uh, due to the uh, uh, work related to the legislative session in Pierre. Uh, As we're recording this broadcast today, it is the 14th day of the legislative session, and uh, this is the time where things really start to pick up pace. Uh, Most of the bills that legislators plan to introduce, uh, have been introduced by now. A lot of them are clearing through committee and uh, going to the floor votes. And so uh, it's a busy time and uh, we work long days. And one of the bills that the uh, South Dakota Catholic Conference is working on is uh, legislation uh, called House Bill 1080, uh, also known as the Help Not Harm Bill. And uh, this legislation uh, deals with this uh, growing phenomena of so-called uh, gender transition procedures. And so what the bill does is it prohibits um, the administration of puberty blockers, cross sex hormones uh, and certain specified surgeries if done for the purpose of, of trying to um, Uh, Validate uh, a minor's perception uh, of being a sex other than their biological sex. Uh, So this bill was heard before the House Health and Human Services Committee this morning. Uh, There was a lot of uh, very uh, uh, impassioned testimony from both proponents and opponents of the bill. Uh, I spoke briefly uh, on that bill on behalf of the Catholic Conference. Uh, And the good news that I'll share is that that bill uh, was passed out of committee uh, by a vote of 11 to 2. So uh, it was very gratifying to see that uh, decisive margin for the bill. Uh, And that will probably be uh, considered on the House floor um, in the next few days. So uh, just an update there on on a real critical bill uh, in the state capitol. So uh, today I I wanna dedicate this episode of Faith and Politics to exploring this whole realm of um, gender ideology and and particularly uh, gender ideology as it manifests itself in this whole area of, um, of so-called uh, gender transition procedures. And I have a special guest uh, today uh, to talk with uh, about this issue, uh, Dr. Al Oliva. Uh, Dr. Oliva is a board certified plastic surgeon who specializes in microsurgery and has been in private practice in Spokane, Washington for 30 years. He was the senior partner of Plastic Surgery Northwest, which is a group dedicated to microvascular reconstruction. Um, Dr. Leva is on the board of directors of Walk for Life Northwest, uh, and he has also held leadership positions on the Catholic Medical Association and now serves on the executive board of that organization. Uh, He's been a great uh, public witness uh, for advocating for the dignity of all human life from conception to natural death. Um, Dr. Leva, welcome to the program. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, I feel I want to share with our listeners uh, in the spirit of full disclosure that uh, uh, my wife and I have known uh, uh, Dr. Leva and his wife and family for many, many years. Uh, uh, they're dear friends and so, uh, uh, probably in this broadcast, I, I'm going to just uh, slip and start calling uh, calling you Al. And I just ask the listeners, I, I'm I'm not being rudely informal, but uh, we've been friends for a long time, and so uh, it's just a pleasure to have a conversation uh, about this subject uh, on which you have so much expertise. So, uh, just to start off with, um, I, I in in one of our previous conversations, um, I learned from you. Uh, Al, that you gave an address last year in Rome to an international gathering of Catholic medical societies, uh, and the subject of your talk was the surgical treatments of adult gender dysphoria. Um, So you've done a lot of research on this topic, and I guess I just want to ask to start with, uh, how did you develop an interest in this whole subject area?
1: Well, I'll, I'll try to give you a short answer, but, but first, uh, let me just say that the uh, International Society of Catholic Physicians, uh, FIANC, it's uh, it's a synonym of uh, a string of French words, but basically, it's an organization of all Catholic uh, physician organizations throughout the um, throughout the world, and they meet... Every four years, and this year it was in Rome uh, on Vatican property. It was an excellent uh, opportunity to meet um, Catholic physicians from throughout the entire world, especially those uh, from the Ukraine. And so, the um, the the topic for this meeting was um, transhumanism and how we are uh, tra- changing our human nature. And uh, a lot was said about. Re- robotics, artificial intelligence. And I was asked to speak on obviously the transitioning that we're trying to do in human beings from uh, changing our biological sex to what we identify as our gender and how we do that surgically. And um, uh, that piqued a great deal of interest in me from a technical aspect because a lot of these procedures are complicated and require microsurgical expertise, which is the transfer of tissue from one part of the body to another to create form or function, as we've done for cancer trauma victims. We currently, in our practice, use it mainly for breast cancer reconstruction. So I started to look at all of this, first of all, from a technical aspect, and then realized that um, the medical literature, uh, on the topic, really is not uh, is is not very um, bountiful, let's say. There's not a lot of literature that that actually describes more than the technique. In other words, mm-hmm. what the lifestyle of these patients are, and uh, the suffering that they go through, and how now they're tied to the medical um, establishment for the rest of their lives. And if if I I may say so, this is a group of individual that needs our love, care, and compassion more than any other group that I can think of uh, because they suffer greatly in in thinking that they are in the wrong uh, biological body. And this causes a great deal of anxiety um, and uh, depression. And so uh the most important thing is for us to help them not to lead them down uh some rabbit hole thinking that by changing the appearance of their bodies that they're going to somehow be relieved of of these very complicated um complex uh psychological uh disturbances that they have
0: yeah so so speaking of of the issue of psychology, uh, what does science tell us about the origin of gender dysphoria? Is, is this fundamentally a psychological issue or is there a genetic root to this phenomenon?
1: Well, if, if
0: we look uh, back historically, let's say 10,
1: 15 years ago, uh, the majority of children that felt this angst of being in the wrong body was quite small, something like 0.003%. And it was seen in pre-pubital boys. In other words, little boys who had not gone through puberty. Fast forward to the uh, current situation and what we're seeing is a huge shift um, and also noted by the Center for Disease Control of a 10, 10, uh, 20 to 40% fold increase in the last decade and but now it is not prepubescent boys but rather it's post pubertal girls so it's girls that have just entered puberty or just finishing puberty 12 13 year old girls um, are making this are making this cohort which had not been seen before and so several um Theories have now come out. Is this simply because society is more accepting of this transgenderism? Or is it because there is a social contagion attached to it that um, it's, it's actually not a stigma to be trans, but actually a bonus? And there are certain, um, you know, there are certain societal benefits that one gets in school and being cool and being part of a group. And so researchers have now found and have written a paper called, uh, rapid onset transgender dysphoria that shows that, you know, parents are attesting that their children never had any of these, uh, dysphoric feelings about their sex. But then as they were part of a group or other girls might've felt that they were trans, then their daughters also had the same inkling and, more girls in these groups started to have the same thing and there are numerous uh, uh, social media sites that uh, encourage children to transition and basically explain that you know the difficulties you're having while you're transitioning in puberty well that's simply because you really are of the opposite sex and if you would just get a hold of that you would see all of these Uh, the psychological feelings about being an adolescent uh, would diminish and possibly go away.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm certainly not a medical expert in this field, but uh, just as a layman, sort of trying to use common sense, it's really hard to imagine a physiological explanation for how you could see this sudden shift from... Uh, reported gender dysphoria cases being primarily young boys to shifting to adolescent girls in such an incredibly abrupt time frame. I mean, is, can can you think of any physiological explanation for why we might see that phenomenon?
1: No, physiologically, I really can't. And uh, I I think the reports of parents who say, you know, my child never had any of these types of feelings or these uh, uh, these psychological issues we never saw, we thought our kid was a happy kid and now all of this is changing. I will point to the science of uh, Dr. Um, Milton Diamond and Dr. Diamond studied uh, monozygotic twins, that those are, uh, layman's term, those are identical twins. In other words, uh, they came from one egg and sperm that split and created two individuals. So. Genetically, they're 99.9% genetically identical. And so those twins, if you follow them, uh, they will have the same height and weight within 90 percentile. Uh, They'll have the same color hair, the same color eyes. Uh, Many will be indistinguishable uh, in terms of their uh, physical characteristics. And this is because of genetics. So, if gender dysphoria was linked to a um, genetic code, then you would expect that these monozygotic twins, as they aged, would have a high concordance rate for being transgender. Well, Dr. Dr. Diamond found out that that's not the case. Uh, The concordance rate was 28% in his uh, twin studies, and he's done several of these studies, and so it it leads to the conclusion that there is more of an environmental factor, uh, experiences that are not shared genetically within the womb or uh, at, uh, immediately after, but are actually experiences that are shared differently um, in in households, and that's why the concordance rate is low at twenty eight percent. So, it seems to point to environmental factors of what happens to these children rather than some innate uh, genetic
0: predisposition. Okay, now that makes sense. Um, so, th- what I want to do is segue um, to your area of, of specialty. And I, not that you're um, involved in, in transgender surgery, but but you're, you're a plastic surgeon and Uh, This is surgical procedures are obviously one of the things that is being done um, uh, in response to gender dysphoria. And it seems to me that regardless of how you view these surgeries from a moral point of view, that they can fairly be described as radical. And, And what I mean by the use of that word is that we're talking about surgeries that remove perfectly healthy and functioning parts of the body. And when I try to think in my brain, you know, to what what other area of medicine um, would you actually remove health? You know, usually you're talking about removing diseased tissue uh, or cancerous tissue. But in this case, we're talking about Uh, removing perfectly healthy and functioning parts of the body, sometimes producing um, irreversible consequences, sterilization, disfigurement. And yet, and we heard this in the testimony um, today uh, on the bill in South Dakota, uh, this whole array of medical professional societies uh, seemingly has embraced this concept of gender-affirming care, including these... um, these surgeries with irreversible consequences. So um, I guess I just want to throw that out there and ask for your thoughts on this. Is this just the logical outcome of divorcing the practice of medicine from any kind of objective, moral or ethical standards? Hmm. Uh,
1: That's a good and um, difficult question of uh, the true ideology. I think it all started with, um, misplaced compassion that uh, people, surgeons wanted to help people with dysphoria thinking that they uh, could be alleviated of this problem. Um, The the fact is though, if we look at the historical science what's published in gender dysphoria is that 86 to 90% of children historically with gender dysphoria would desist after going through puberty
0: hmm.
1: so and that and and we just don't make any uh we just don't focus on that enough so that if, if we're saying that 85 to 90 percent of children would actually not have this feeling of dysphoria if you just counseled them loved them took care of them and families then why are we why are we treating so many children with um uh, life-altering medications of whose consequences we don't know. So when little boys are given estrogen before they become, the, before, before they go through puberty, uh, sure. we know that this is going to have a detrimental effect on their bones. But to what degree, we don't know. Is it going, can it cause bone cancer? Um, can it cause a male breast cancer? We don't know. We think it could, and we won't know for another 20 or 30 years. But why are we doing that when the vast majority will desist and not have these issues, you know, similarly, when we give, when we give, uh, testosterone to prepubescent girls or postpubescent girls, um, you know, it stops their periods and uh it gives them kind of a a jolt in the arm it gives them a little bit uh better muscle producing capabilities and it gives them psychologically a euphoria Uh, and that's interpreted uh, that you know this is exactly what they needed they needed to transition and the proof is that they're feeling better well that's a temporary relief and um you know exactly what testosterone does to a young girl long term we just don't know and but they're going to have to be on these hormone supplements for the rest of their lives they're intrinsically linked um, to the medical health care system forever uh, yeah. and these are normal people that really didn't require any of these drugs and most of them without these drugs would desist and not have gender dysphoria. So, how did we get there? Well, the the results with um, transitioning surgery in adults were very poor. So the thought was, well, you know, if we would start when when these when these uh, adults were children, if we if we treated them when they were children, then we could uh, offset the uh, secondary sexual characteristics, which make it more difficult when they're adults to change. Like what, like forehead bossing, a deeper voice, all of these changes. So that if we were uh, to do this when they were young, then maybe the results would be better. Unfortunately, as we say, you know, we're only talking about 15% of children with gender dysphoria. 85% Eighty-five percent or more don't need any treatment other than care, love, affection, um, the warmth and security of a family. Yeah,
0: so uh, and, and I didn't answer misplaced. completely
1: your questions of what's involved, but that's how we've gotten there. And it's this misplaced idea that anyone can be whatever they want. It's kind of a, um, a detachment from the reality that there is an absolute truth. And that there's absolutes in society that things are right and things are wrong, and we've adopted this uh, ideology uh, that sexuality is fluid, and uh, there really is no uh, absolute. And uh, you know, whatever whatever we s- seem to f- think is pleasurable uh, should be allowable.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think. Um your diagnosis is exactly right. There's deep philosophical roots uh, to this ideology. Um, uh, there's this sense that our biological sex is not something that is is just given, but that it's 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 willed. Um, you know, you can will yourself to be a sex other than you know what you obviously are, based upon your your chromosomes. Um, so so when we talk about medical organizations that are um i, I guess if you will captive by uh, captivated by this ideology uh one of the first ones that comes to mind for me is this organization called uh Wpath uh that stands for the World Professional Association of Transgender Health and this organization has advanced um what they describe as uh, standards of care for treating gender dysphoria. Um, can you just comment a little bit on what what does this organization do, and why are they significant in the whole controversy? Well,
1: you know that's a very interesting point. Um, that WPATH had its origin among transitioners. Uh, that's how the organization started, a group of transitioners who met, uh, I believe, in in Copenhagen or Amsterdam, I don't recall right now, and said, you know, we should develop standards for, for people who want to transition. So it's an activist group that is fully on board with transitioning children um, and and adults. And so y- y- you wonder why they all of a sudden are the um are the, the center of truth when it comes to transgender medicine because they're completely biased. They're not, they don't look at any of the scientific data to say, wait a minute, uh, you know, like they don't look at the desist data or they just ignore it. Just as now they're ignoring the detransitioners. Uh, there's a group of detransitioners and WPAT completely ignores their plight Shouldn't they yeah. be helped to go back to the original sex that they felt was correct for them, that they made a mistake? You know, what's really disturbing now is that um, these um, um, the standards of care uh, have been revised. And uh, during the last revision, Revision 8, which happened this year, uh, WPATH has completely decided to get rid of all of its Uh, All of its restrictions in terms of age, Uh, before you needed to be 14 years old for uh, cross-sex hormones, they've gotten rid of that. Before they suggested you were 15 years old for double mastectomies, they've gotten rid of that age. Uh, Before they thought you should be 16 years old for breast implants or uh, facial feminization surgery, they've gotten rid of that. Uh, They thought you should be 17 years old before you had a genital surgery, and they've gotten rid of that as well. Um, So they've become more and more uh, radical uh, as time has gone on. But the last recommendations are just bizarre, absolutely bizarre. Uh, And it's leading to this idea that now you can do genital surgery on children Mm. Um, with questionable parental consent. And the issue of consent is important. How does a child understand that in the future they will be sterile, that their sexual function in terms of just pleasure from sex might be completely altered, and that all of this is irreversible? So how is a child supposed to... um, understand that? Or even parents who want their children to be happy, how are they really making a decision that is so far into the future about what what is going to happen? Again, when the vast majority of these children, if you left them alone, would be able to have sexual function in the future, would be able to have children if they wanted to in the future, and yet we're stealing that from them. Over an ideology, not even yeah. over any scientific fact. Over an ideology. In fact, the science points you in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah. Well, and and it's interesting when you contemplate the the ar- vast array of our laws that we have related to minors. Um, we have laws that say that uh, underage uh, uh, people cannot consent to marriage even on occasions when the parent would be okay with it but we say you know at a certain age you're too young to consent to a marriage uh you're too young to sign a contract too young to vote too young to buy alcohol and tobacco uh and you know we could go on and on and just name this whole laundry list of laws that are established um You know, frankly, to protect minors uh, from their own immaturity, and we never question this in other contexts. Uh, But in this particular context, when we're talking about, you know, literally amputating perfectly healthy parts of the body and taking drugs with uh, unknown long-term consequences, then suddenly we say, you know, minors know what they're doing, and uh, it's it's really really strikes me as a as a remarkable uh, double standard. So, well, I want to talk with you um, a little bit more about uh w but uh for our radio listening audience uh, we are coming up uh, towards the end of our time uh here but we are going to continue the conversation with dr al oliva uh, and if you would like to hear that whole unabridged conversation of uh, the podcast will soon be available on the website of the south dakota catholic conference that is Sdcatholicconference.org. so again uh uh, please go there to see the rest of the conversation but for our radio listening audience until next time live well all right and for the lucky uh podcast uh uh, audience that gets to listen to the uh, unabridged conversation um uh al i want to ask you about um A group that I stumbled across as I was researching this subject, Um, it is called the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, and uh, I I had not even heard of this group a year ago, but uh, in the process of researching the WPATH guidelines that you were just talking about, um, I found some Frankly, uh, rather harsh critiques of their guidelines by this group, uh, the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. So, uh, can you share a little bit about this uh, group and and why is their involvement so important? Well, you
1: know, uh, they they go by the name SGEM, Society of Gender Evidence-Based uh, Medicine, and that's exactly their goal. Their goal is simply to say, okay, what is the evidence? Let's put all of this etiology aside. If we're really serious about helping people, we should try to have medical evidence to show what is beneficial and what is harmful. And that I think is their entire goal. Um, they're a group mainly of academicians who see what's going on for what it truly is, um, an ideology that is s- supplanted uh, basic medical science. Uh, and, you know, I came across them uh, first when um, I was researching an article uh, that was written in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2019, and it was written as, um, as a paper from um, uh, the Karolinska Institute uh, and Yale University. All right and um, and this this paper uh, was written by um, was written by um, a Dr Brandstrom from the Karolinska and a Dr Pachinkis from uh, from Yale and basically uh, they suggested that their paper lent uh, quote strong support in providing uh, gender-affirming care. And in fact, the lead author from Yale said that, um, um, quote, no longer can we say that we lack high quality evidence of the benefits of providing gender-affirming surgery to transgender individuals who seek them. So those are strong uh, statements to make. Well, guess what? The Society for Evidence-Based Medicine reviewed the paper and found that the data actually showed the opposite, that there was no evidence that providing surgical care changed any outcome in terms of psychological benefits. In fact, the data showed exactly the opposite of the conclusions. Um, and so the Karolinska Institute, um, then provided a retraction to that article. The American American Society of Psychiatry issued a retraction and so did Yale University, you know. However, that information had been on social media for several months. And so, this is the kind of, of of what we're seeing in medicine today that people are blatantly uh, concluding falsely based on their own evidence of what is beneficial in transgender medicine, something I thought we'd never see in medicine, that people would frankly falsify their results. And it's groups like the Society of Evidence-Based Medicine that that are putting things straight.
0: Yeah. The, same,
1: the same thing recently happened at the University of Washington, here in Washington State, in the um, pediatric department at the Children's Hospital. A paper was written that psychological benefits were shown in transitioning and giving transsex hormones to children. The evidence was reviewed and found to be completely false. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, very few mainstream uh, writers, there are a few that have written on this, uh, but mainly it goes by the sidelines. You know, once once the headline is there, the social media picks it up and and uh, distributes it, even though it's false. So we yeah. need groups like the Society for Evidence-Based uh, Gender Medicine because
0: we need to know what the truth is. Yeah. Well, yeah, hearing you describe this process reminds me of that old expression that uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like, uh, a lie can make it around the world five times before the truth even gets its pants on. Fantastic. And uh, right. and it, is, right. it always does seem like we're playing uh, catch up on these things. And, and right. I think you pinpointed it right, that uh, social media and the instant information age we live in, um, there's there's blessings to it, but there's also just this huge danger that uh, somebody puts a study out there that is basically junk science, but it can dominate the headlines and shape cultural attitudes and public opinion, and it may be complete bunk. But the process of identifying it, uh, the 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 the, the methodol- methodological flaws, can take such a long time. And then by the time it's reported, yeah, then the, the damage is already done. Um, so I want to, Oh, did you have another comment? Well, I just
1: wanted to point out that, you know, there is data out there and, um, I think we need to take a hard look at the Scandinavian countries. You know, it was the Dutch protocol from the Netherlands that started this idea of transitioning children, not from any scientific evidence, But simply because this is what their philosophy was on treating children. And uh, now that's come under attack. Um, You know, the Journal of uh, Sex and Marital marital Therapy that I just saw, there's an article by a James Cantor um, who fact checked the American Academy of Pediatrics for taking on the Dutch protocol when there was no science. So now people are pushing back and are saying, wait a minute, let's really go back and look at, you know, what the Dutch protocol was about and how uh, uh, other countries in Europe are backing off from it while here in the United States we're pushing forward. You know, you may, ha- you may have heard of the uh, Travestock clinic in London that was closed down. Again, this this was a transitioning clinic for children found to be completely abusive of children because there was no psychological counseling at all. And even WPATH says that, you know, you can't transition children who are um, psychologically distraught. You have to try to counsel them first before you go, you take on all these therapies. And that wasn't happening in London. And it doesn't basically happen in any of the clinics in the United States either. A child simply claims that they're transgender and immediately they go on to a protocol without any evaluation of whether that's true. And if the parents ask any questions, well, they're suspect too, uh, because they're advocating for their own children. So now the data is coming out. And when you look at the Scandinavian countries, who have been transitioning uh, patients for a very long time. If we look at the the outcomes of patients, adults who have transitioned surgically and follow them for 10 years. So this is a long follow-up of of 10 years after they've transitioned and we see how are they doing psychologically? Well, Mm. we note that the suicide rate, the completed suicide rate for these really distraught individuals is 19 times the suicide rate of their cohorts in the Scandinavian countries. And if we look at uh, male to female transitioners, it's 40 times. So the data shows that, you know, it didn't help them psychologically to transition these whatever these psychological demons are they're still there they still persist surgery provides a momentary relief for several years but if you follow them down the line the completed suicide rate is extremely extremely high and so now we're starting to see that and we're starting to see the um scandinavian countries who have a socialized medical system and have the data readily available in, in a database, a longitudinal database, they're now saying, wait a minute, is this the best way for us to spend he- health care doc- dollars? So now Sweden, yeah. Finland, the UK, and even France have put the brakes on transitioning children. Yeah. And so because they see that the psychological benefits aren't there and there is an expenditure of Limited capital for these uh, countries with socialized medicine, so that should be a warning for us in the United States about what we're doing. Yet we're doing the opposite. The American Academy of Pediatricians, of Pediatrics rather, is gun ho on transitioning children, uh, yeah. and uh, to do so is considered a nearly malpractice in the United States. I will wow. also say that. In, in, in a pushback to the American Academy of Pediatrics, we have the founding of the American College of Pediatricians. These are pediatricians who actually read the data and see that this transitioning is harming children, not helping them. And therefore, they've, they've uh, created a professional society, of board-certified pediatricians, a lot of them pediatric endocrinologists, who know about hormones to push back and say, no, look at the data from the Scandinavian countries. We should not be transitioning children, especially since the historical data shows that over 85% of them will desist if we just counsel them,
0: love them and take care of them. Yeah. Well, um, I want to ask, uh, ask a little bit about the specifics of, of the surgeries that are involved uh, in these um, so-called gender uh, reassignment uh, procedures. And I, I need to provide a trigger warning to sensitive listeners, especially if you're a parent with young children nearby. Um, this is not a necessarily a pleasant uh, topic to discuss, but I think it's important for the sake of honesty um, that we talk about what these surgeries actually do to alter the physical appearance of people with gender dysphoria. Um, I think we just need to look these problems in the eye and uh, before we can really know how to respond appropriately. So uh, with that being said, um, can can you just explain um, what things are done surgically as part of these procedures? And I, and I guess maybe just to lead off. Uh, if 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 it's a male who is attempting to appear biologically as a female, uh, what types of procedures are actually done? well,
1: from uh, from a male to female, that's uh, the easier approach um, and relatively so, speaking <laughs> relatively speaking, because basically yeah. uh, what you're doing is, uh, you're you're removing the penis but saving uh, a large portion of its skin. Then you're removing the testicles and using the scrotum to make a neo-vagina to involute that into the pelvis. And of course, the the issue is always that uh, the vaginal canal will be short and not lengthy enough. Uh, there have been other ways to create a vagina using even part of the uh, large intestine, but that has a much higher complication rate. And of course, along uh, uh, with that, then there would be uh, a continuing hormonal therapy, uh, so that uh, then the breasts would be uh, augmented uh, later, or at the same time. Uh, then there would be a correction of the of of the facial features to make it look more feminine, including uh, the brows, uh, even surgery on the vocal cords to make the voice less, um, less, uh, deep, uh, and those would be the basic issues. Uh, but make no mistake about it. Uh, you know, it's a penectomy. you're removing the penis and, and that's not easily reversed. It's, it's, it's permanent. It's sterility,
0: sterility would be permanent. Yes,
1: because of, uh, yes, because of the, uh, testicular, uh, removal.
0: Yes. Yeah. Sterility is there for sure. Yeah. Um, and and then uh if if we could just uh talk about the, the the other side, you know, surgeries that are done upon biological females who are trying to take on the appearance of a male. That's so, a little more complicated so, as I yes, understand. Very it.
1: very much more complicated because now um now we have to create a phallus a penis and what's typically done is A large section of the forearm, uh, both the the volar and dorsal side, meaning both sides of the forearm, that tissue, that skin is removed along with the blood vessels that connect to it, the radial artery and veins. And that tissue is then uh, made into a tube, uh, but then the urethra uh, that that connects the urine uh, from the bladder to the tip of the penis has to be created as well. Um, And so it's basically a tube within a tube and this requires microvascular uh, expertise because that tissue has to be transplanted to the perineum and blood vessels need to be connected using a microscope and suture material finer than hair. Now wow. the difficulty here is that um, the urethra in a in a woman is only three centimeters or so, and now you have to connect that all the way to the tip of um, of the penis, and so the urethra um, um, is. Um, y- is of skin, but typically it's of mucosa. So it's, there's a difference there in the in the uh, complication. Over 65% of patients who have these surgeries end up with either a urethral stricture, which is you know a, a contraction uh, within the tubing of the urethra, or with a fistula where the urine actually leaks uh, from the bottom of the penis. So. That's That's the real difficulty in this uh, female to male surgery. And then you have to create a scrotum and that can be done uh, uh, with part of the uh, part of the vagina or with prosthesis as well. The penis of course, is going to have to have some type of erectile um, uh, instrument, some type of uh, an implant that could be, inflated with air to provide an erection but this does not mean that there's the same kind of sexual function uh, that you know a normal male would have there would be really um, no true sexual uh, function to it another alternative is to simply give um, give um, enough testosterone so that the um, so that the clitoris can actually become elongated by a few centimeters, not very long, um, and and some uh, some female-to-male patients choose not to have a phallus created at all and simply have this pseudo penis in terms of an elongated uh, clitoris to avoid all the complications of, of the
0: urethra that's associated with creating a real phallus so w- w- there's obviously just this wide array of these um uh, i guess call them amp- amputations or, or castrations for lack of a, of a better word and then reconstructing these sort of uh facsimiles i guess of yes. of uh you know uh authentic organs, they're not actually real organs, but just these, um, you know, attempted facsimiles. Um, what kind of complication rates, and I, I recognize it's probably different for each one of these procedures, but can you just, uh, f- to give our listening audience some perspective, you know, what would be typical complication rates for some of these things? Well, again, it, uh, you know, the, the, great, the greatest
1: complication rates are from uh, female to male. And uh, urethral stricture um, is over sixty-five percent if you're creating a phallus. Uh, but if you're if you're just uh, using the clitoris, uh, an enlarged clitoris, it's still around sixty-three percent. And then the fistula, we have an abnormal communication from the urethra out of, out of the skin, so that urine would be leaking through the base of the penis. Uh, for the uh, phalloplasty, it's about 27 to 30 percent. So, you know, revision surgery in these procedures are over 75 percent that you need more than a procedure to correct the complications. Um,
0: well,
1: but well. you know, uh, many uh, many of these female-to-male patients, they you know, they're seeking to be able to urinate from uh, in a standing position. Uh, so that's a goal for them, and that's why the phalloplasty is uh, is something that they would that they would search out, despite the high complication rate from the u- urological part of the operation.
0: Okay, so I want to ask you, um, you know, what what to me seems like an obvious question that everybody should be asking at this point, which is we're we're talking about. Elective procedures here. These are procedures that are are chosen. We're not uh, treating a disease or 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 you know removing a cancer or anything like that. This is an elective procedure. Um, can you think of any other elective procedures where complication rates this high would be tolerated? No. Uh- even
1: other you know in in other surgical procedures i mean if a complication rate is 60% or more i you know i think you have to revisit the entire operation i can't think of any surgical procedures that has that kind of high complication rate
0: yeah yeah that's that's the first thought that comes to my mind is that uh if, if your life is at stake um than a procedure that has a 50 50 chance of saving your life. Well, those, you know, you might say, let's go for it. You know, what, what do I have right. to lose? But, but when you're talking about, uh, yeah, a purely elective procedure, um, this is, uh, these are astonishing numbers. So, well, um, that's about, uh, all the time we have for our, uh, program today. Uh, but, uh, Dr. Leva, any any final thoughts uh, that you'd like to just share with our listeners, uh, especially as regards, as I mentioned before, the big issue that we're talking about in South Dakota now is these kinds of procedures being done on on minors. Just any uh, final thoughts you can share on that subject with us? Yes. I think we need to, I
1: think we need to encourage families that, um, their child is not going to commit suicide if they don't transition. That's a fallacy. Mm -hmm. It's not based on any clinical evidence at all. We need to encourage families to just love their children, children who really feel dysphoria. You need our complete attention. They need all the resources that we have in loving them, counseling them, and taking care of them and encouraging the family that 85% chance that this dysphoria will desist will once they get through puberty. So we need to encourage them to listen to what is established science and not ideology and not get caught up in this whirlwind that's going on right now uh, that really threatens the livelihood of many, many children in the United States. Very, very well
0: said. Thank you. Well, uh thank you uh to all of our listeners. That's all the time we have for this episode of Faith and Politics. Um I do want to mention um again uh the the bill that is being considered in South Dakota right now is House Bill 1080. Uh and if you would like to get some more information on that, uh please visit the website of the South Dakota Catholic Conference that is sdcatholicconference.org um and you can uh on the home page you'll see a place where you can click on issues that are being discussed during the 2023 legislative session and uh, if you go there that'll be the first item on the list is house bill 1080. Um, as i said this bill will be on the house floor uh, very soon and then going over to the state senate so now is a great time uh, to uh, contact your legislator send them an email leave them a phone message Um, and urge their support for this common-sense legislation um, that just protects uh, vulnerable children from these harmful medical interventions. So, again, uh, thank you to everyone. And until next time, live well.